This podcast is intended to provide general information about various recent developments in employment law and human resources best practices. Nothing in this presentation or in the comments of Ms. Johnson, Ms. Shannon, or any guest should be considered as the rendering of legal or other professional advice, and it is not directed at any specific cases or circumstances. Listeners are responsible for obtaining the necessary advice about their specific situations from their own counsel. These materials are intended for educational and informational purposes only. The presentation and these materials represent the opinions of the participants and not those of their law firms or companies. No part of these materials may be printed, photocopied, or otherwise reproduced, recorded, or stored, or transmitted in any form and by any means, electronic, mechanical, or otherwise, without the prior written permission of today's workplace podcast. Welcome to today's workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. During our last episode, we had a great discussion with Allison Nelson at Ford Motor Company. Allison is the Director of Diversity across the global organization, and she was able to tell us so many important and informative ideas about how diversity, equity, and inclusion plays out against a large, uh, mature manufacturing organization uh, that is established across the world. But today, we're really excited to discuss what diversity, equity, and inclusion looks like outside of the United States. We are thrilled to welcome Abam Mambo to today's Workplace Podcast. Abam has a very diverse personal and professional background that began with her early life in the country of Cameroon, her journey to life and work in the United States, and then her return to the continent of Africa as an expat for several years in South Africa before settling in Singapore, where she's now located. Along the way, Abam has built an impressive career as an employment attorney, white collar investigator, and corporate compliance officer. Abam has also become a highly sought after speaker on topics related to women in leadership and other diversity related topics. Abam, before we begin with questions, we'd love to hear more about your personal journey as an immigrant to the United States other African countries, and Singapore, and how that's shaped and formed your worldview as you progressed in your professional career. Barbara and Belinda, it's so awesome to be here. After working with you all for a few years, I remember my first year at Glaxo, we were all working on a Supreme Court case and oh. actually went to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, um, but, uh, I, yeah good memory. I forgot about that. I cannot forget about it because I was sworn in by Chief Justice Roberts. So. (laughs) Wow. Okay. (laughs) I remember that very fun. We spent a lot of time with the Paul Hastings team at that time. So it's such a joy to be with both of you and your amazing trailblazers in in this liberal employment space. So, you know, I I walk in the shadow of giants here. So in terms of my background, I grew up in Cameroon, born there, raised there, left at 16, 
And I, I tell people I'm an immigrant in different ways, but it's such an interesting thing because when I moved to the US, I was an immigrant, right? And when I moved from the US to South Africa on assignment, I was not so much an immigrant as an expat. Uh-huh. And so the language we use in even in this role, and I think about me moving here as an expat and workers from India, Nepal, moving here as migrant workers, right? We're all doing the same thing. We're all economic migrants, but because of how much you make or the role you're in, you're called something else. It's just fascinating to me when we talk about inclusion and diversity, but we'll come back to that. So I moved to the US and I lived in a bunch of the M state. I was in Maryland, then Minnesota, then went to law school at Michigan. And I just had a really amazing time in terms of my educational experience and the interface in Maryland in particular with different cultures and so on. So I had kind of an exposure to the US that I hadn't had before, of course. And at that time, I remember diversity and inclusion was not really the conversation. It was mostly the melting pot. I don't know if you both remember this. It was the melting pot. Oh, yeah. And I was like, what are we melting, though? Um, <laughs> and then I, I moved back to Minneapolis, practiced there, got married there, had my awesome little guy who's testing me a little bit these days, and then went in-house to GSK. And so in 2016, I got the amazing opportunity to move back to the continent And I say the continent because it's still in many ways home for me. So I moved there, um, stepped out of legal into the role of ethics and compliance director, loved it. And then 18 months in, I was asked if I wanted to move to Asia, to move to Singapore. And I said, I don't know where it is, but I'm an adventurer at heart. And I asked my boss some four really important questions. I said, can I afford healthcare? Is the crime rate low? Is education great? And can I afford a living nanny? Because at the time I was a single mom. He said, yes, 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 yes. I said, sign me up. And it's been blissful since then. So that's a synopsis of my personal and professional journey. And so here I am. Let me ask you um, a really quick question. Um, I just wanted to go deeper on a couple of points. Um, one is when you um, came first came to the United States as a teenager mm-hmm. and you entered the educational system, had were you already um, speaking English? You know, had you been trained in English as a second language, or was that also an additional, you know, thing you had to overcome? Yeah, no, so Cameroon is bilingual. We, you know, our colonial heritage left us with English and French as national languages. I see. So I grew up speaking both and I grew up speaking Pidgin because Mm -hmm. interestingly in the diversity that is Cameroon, you spoke English or French if you grew up in the big cities or if you were educated. And then you spoke a traditional dialect if you lived in the village. And then if you were somewhere in between, you spoke Pidgin. It's very interesting in our household because we live in the capital city, which is predominantly French speaking. So we had to speak French. We spoke English at home and at school, but with our cousins and relatives in the village, we spoke Pidgin or the dialect. That's kind of how we came up. 
Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. We should all be <laughs> so fortunate as to have, you know, multiple languages be a natural part, you know, of our life and our development, our personal development. Um, the other question that I wanted to ask you, Abom, you spoke about, you know, after leaving uh, law school at Michigan, you um, did a, a little bit of time at a law firm and then you came in house to GSK, which is where we met. Um, mm -hmm. it, talk to me about that transition from in-house employment lawyer to ethics and compliance director. You know, how did that, how did that happen and what did that mean in terms of what you uh, did and how you supported an organization from a day to day? Yeah. So when I joined GSK and I'll never forget this, it was July 5th, 2011. And I remember this because a week in, I had to sit down with my bosses and do the typical um, performance development plan. And I had to talk about where I saw myself in a year, in five years, and in 10 years. And I distinctly remember this because I had put down in five years, I want to be working for this company in Africa because I felt that I left as a teenager and never really contributed economically to African society, right? So for me, it was so important that working um, for a company like GSK, that I would have the opportunity to go back and give back in that way. And so um, what happened was 2016, so five years later, five years and a month later, I was, I, I hopped on the plane and moved to South Africa. And what happened a few months earlier was I was approached about stepping out of role in legal to take on an ethics and compliance role. And I was adequately prepared for that because I had worked on, I was supporting the US pharma business at the time as an employment lawyer. But I had come in at a time when we had the corporate integrity agreement. And so I spent a lot of time with the compliance team working on that and honing my skills. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of a natural fit um, to then just go out and explore. And like I mentioned earlier, I'm an, I'm an adventurer. I'm very, very curious. And so I had the perfect recipe of travel, going back to give back to the continent and then stepping out of role to expand my skill set. So it all just worked out beautifully. And now and my all, headphones won't stay on. Right. Let's see, there we go. In all the time being an uh, awesome mother. Let's ask myself what he thinks about that. We've had so much fun though. He's like my sidekick. We do everything together. <laughs> That's wonderful. Abom, were you outside of the U.S. last year when George Floyd, when the George Floyd murder occurred? And if so, how did that event and the resulting response to racial injustice from corporate America play out on the global perspective? Whew. I feel um, I'm of two minds about where I was at that time because on the one hand, I was so grateful that I was not in the U.S. at that time, just given, given everything. And, you know, for me, home in the U.S. is Minneapolis. Mm. I went to high school there. I went to college there. My first four years of practice were there. I was married there. My son was born there. And that whole area around Lake Street, not far mm -hmm. from where I went to school and not far from where I lived. The entirety of my paternal family still lives in Minneapolis. 
um, my son's father and the, the entire family still live in Minnesota. So I'm still very much rooted there. And so it was very hard for me to understand how Minneapolis, with all of our Minneapolis nice, was the place where this was happening. So for me, there was that kind of just what is going on, mm -hmm. right? And so I felt a sense of guilt, on the other hand, that I wasn't there because in a way it felt like I wasn't part of the movement from mm -hmm. this distance. And that morning was an interesting thing because I tell people, I mean, we're 12 hours ahead of Eastern time. So I always joke with my friends that I come to you all from the future. <laughs> <laughs> but when we, so Amy Cooper happened that morning, if I recall correctly, the whole uh, Central Park issue with the calling of the, the woman who called the cop yeah. about the black guy who was not harassing her, right? Yeah. She said he was. Yeah. I didn't remember so, that. They, they were that close, yeah. They were, they were that close. I think it was th that same morning and then George Floyd happened at night. And so it happened in the morning, but it was night in Singapore. And I remember smoke coming out of my ears, right? I was just so furious about it, about the whole Central Park incident. And what I recall most distinctly was your question around international perspective. I'm a member of two women leadership groups, right? One of them is predominantly Black. It's an African professional women's group. And we're all on WhatsApp. And then, I mean, the more multiracial group, which has very few Black women, but all other races. And so Amy Cooper happened that morning, George Floyd that evening. And up until that point, both groups had been raging about why is it we don't have more women speakers, right? And so there were two separate conversations on my same phone on the same issue. And both sets of women felt exactly the same way about having so many male speakers, no room for female speakers. So the conversations were going down the same track. Mm -hmm. George Floyd happens that night. I wake up the next morning. The conversation in the African and uh, African American and African women's group had completely pivoted to George Floyd. There were tears, there was rage, there was identification. This could be my brother, it could have been my husband. People were sharing stories. There was rage, there wow. was hurt. There was this cannot go on. There was, you know, I don't care if you're African, Afro-Caribbean, African-American, we have to stand together. So that's happening in this conversation. In this conversation, we're still arguing about men and women mm. and speaking. So I followed this for a few days to see if the conversation on this one side would change. It didn't. And for me, that's where there was such a disconnect and such a difference and something we don't want to talk about, right? Especially as women, we want to keep the sisterhood together without mm -hmm. acknowledging intersectionality. So about a weekend, I finally wrote to my other women's group and I said, are we going to talk about this or are we just going to not like act like this has happened? And at that point, to their credit, everybody kicked into action. We talked about it. We had a whole speaker series around it. But it was just very striking to me 
the different reaction in those two WhatsApp groups. And that was actually a reflection of larger society because until people started marching in the streets, until plumes of smoke started going into the sky, I mm -hmm. don't think the world understood how hurt, how angry and how done Blacks in America were, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I tell that story because I, I had assumed the same reaction would occur in both groups, it didn't. One group needed prompting and then they responded, the other group took off running. Right. That's fascinating. That is really fascinating. And it kind of leads into um, the next question that I have for you, because you've worked in several different global markets. You've worked in the, in the continent of Africa, although you're based in South Africa, um, you really had, you know, other responsibilities throughout mm -hmm. the continent. And mm -hmm. then you uh, pivoted to Singapore. And so um, based on your experience, I really want to um, understand a little bit of how diversity and inclusion, equity, how does that play out in those locations? Um, what, what did that look like? So diversity and inclusion in Africa is an interesting one because being based in South Africa, in some ways, the conversation there because of apartheid and the dismantling of apartheid is much more advanced, right? People talk very openly about the need to have quotas to rectify the wrongs of the very, very recent past. I mean, we're talking the first democratically elected president in 94, Mandela. So it's right. very recent history. And so I think it, the conversation happens in other parts of the continent, conversation tends to still focus around women, predominantly, getting women on boards and so on. Asia is a really, really interesting story, which is why when I was thinking about starting my consultancy, which we'll talk about later, I wanted to do it here. Because living here and calling people Asians almost sounds wrong. Mm -hmm. Because it's so diverse and so incredibly different culturally. When I think about Southeast Asia versus North Asia, it's like comparing apples and oranges in so many respects. And so what I'm starting to realize is where the conversation around DNA in America is around, do we still need this? Are we getting value for our money in these programs? Is this, is affirmative action not reverse discrimination? All of that. In Asia, the question is, what is this? Teach us, help us understand. It's more of an awareness gap mm -hmm. than a challenge, a pushback, a it's not working conversation. And that, that for me is where I see an opening to have a conversation because mm -hmm. people are curious, right? You, you look at a market like Japan, there's little to no ethnic diversity. It's a very homogeneous society. So when you start talking about gender, the default here, like Africa is gender. Yes. And then okay. I have to prompt people a little, right? And say, is it though? Because we have India and the caste system. Can mm -hmm. we just be real, right? Yes, We have in some of these markets vast socioeconomic differences. Colorism is alive and thriving. Right. So there are layers to inclusion and diversity that haven't been unpacked here yet. 
But I think it's more of a lack of awareness and full engagement with the conversation as opposed to an opposition to it or rejection of it. Mm -hmm. And so that's the big difference I see is that we have an opportunity to reshape the conversation in the US context. And in Asia and Africa, I think it's more of raising an awareness of the expansiveness that diversity actually is. But in both markets, revisiting the value proposition, because I think that's still what is not landing or it's not clear to people. But I, I always say that here is an awareness gap. In the US, I think it's more of, a, of, a, of an outcomes gap where, where people are challenging does this work? Is it real? Isn't it reverse discrimination? Here, we're, we haven't gotten that far in the conversation. You know, Abam, you've had a unique opportunity to develop an incredible, um, diverse worldview of diversity and inclusion. Tell us how you personally define diversity and what you have experienced or witnessed in how companies outside of the United States approach diversity? So I need to just say, th these are my personal views and not the views of any company that I've worked for. What I've seen, especially in the last year and maybe in the last two years has been an attempt to develop more local talent. Because one of the questions I've been asking is, let's look at how talent travels and which talent is traveling where. So if it's blue collar type jobs, we see migration from the south northward or east westward, except in the case of tech, right? Where a lot of our engineers are from China and India. But if we look at the upper echelons of corporations, especially multinational corporations in Africa and Asia, we see talents, predominantly white male talent traveling south and east. And mm. my question is, what's up with that? What is up with that? Right. And a lot of the response we get is we can't find the local talent. And I say, build it build it in the same way that you build the talent that you can then send over east and south, build it. And so that's my first kind of push on that. And I, and I always say, one of the things that was such a lesson when I moved first to Africa and into Asia was, when you come in as an expat, you can change whatever you want. And people would always say, the locals will hold their breath and say, well, should we go in two or three years and then we'll be back to what we're doing anyway? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. If you, if you want systemic change in an organization, you need people who have gone abroad, learned how to do it differently, but they can come back to their markets, which they understand like the back of their hands and implement, right? But that's not really what's happening. So that's, that, that's one thing that I, I see. So my definition of diversity now has just expanded because I'm getting away from, I remember, I remember the phrase we use, let's find diverse candidates or let's get a diverse hire, mm -hmm. meaning women, usually racial minorities, usually maybe sometimes veterans, LGBTQ, all of that. And my 
frustration with that is twofold. And when I give talks on this, I always say this, that we have to go back to the definition of diversity without all the frills and drama, right? That corporations and HR have put on it, which is diversity is just a range of things and a variety of different things, right? That's it. Right. Mm -hmm. What that means to me is white cisgendered men are part of a tapestry of diversity. Now, some people have their backs up against the wall when I say that, but the reason I say that is because if we think about diverse hires, right, as only women and minorities, when they come into organizations, first of all, they feel like everybody's looking at them and decide that you got in here because you were the diversity hire. So there's that stigma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then secondly, look at our ERGs. They're self-selecting. So now you've taken the people who are small in numbers, don't have the power, the cloud, and they're pushing up this diversity boulder up a hill by themselves. And where is the power and the cloud? Outside the room, Mm -hmm. right? So my philosophy is if we can get white cisgendered men in particular who have the power and the purse to actually effectuate change in the DNI space because they identify with it, then we're getting somewhere. This is a problem that needs all hands on deck, but the hands with the biggest influence are not in the room, either because they feel marginalized and put out of the conversation, or they've taken themselves out of the conversation. And so I'm just thinking when people say, well, IND programs are underfunded, I'm like, well, but Where's the money going? We tend to put our money where our mouth is. Right. And so if the people who have the money and the power are not in the space around DNI, what do we expect? And I gave a talk last year, and this was such a resounding thing for me because I gave this talk, I gave this premise, and I said, my focus has shifted from just diversity and inclusion or DENI to diversity plus inclusion equals belonging and and I shared my diversity story and at the end of it the CEO who was a white man said Obama I've never to this until today until I heard you speak thought of myself as someone from a diverse background to which I said okay you grew up in an all-white neighborhood sure were your teachers all white Were they all cis? Were they all Jewish? Were they all men? Were they all the same age? Right? Mm -hmm. Whoever your barista is at your favorite coffee shop, are they exactly you? So I'm just challenging this pretense that we don't know what diversity is. Diversity is kind of foreign. Like diversity is as old as time. It's been here from the beginning. Whether you believe in the Big Bang or in the seven days of creation from the beginning, there was more than one thing. And so we know what it is. Let's not act brand new. When we come into the workplace, we might pretend we don't know what it is, but we know what it is because we had neighbors who were not from the same country as us, the same religion as us, the same state as us, the same values that we have. And so we know diversity. We're all part of that tapestry of diversity. So can we act like it and get all hands on deck to fix this problem? Because that's what we need to really 
change things. And the second thing that I, I keep pushing on this topic besides redefining diversity is diversity and inclusion has to be going somewhere. And for me, that North Star, that somewhere is belonging. Because all the conversations I've heard about women in senior positions or immigrants being told to go back, underlying all of that is you do not belong here. Mm -hmm. You don't belong here. This is not your place. And so we're all looking for our tribe, right? And so the reason why I created Belonging IQ is because I wanted that conversation to be about diversity and inclusion as the cornerstone, the pillars leading us to belonging. Because at the end of the day, if employees feel like they belong, they're more likely to stay longer at the company, to be better stewards of the company's resources and its reputation. They're more likely to be more engaged because they feel like it's home. This is my tribe. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's where we need to be going. And that's what living internationally has taught me is that diversity doesn't have one definition. If I use the U.S. interpretation of diversity in a market like Japan, it wouldn't translate. One of the reasons why Singaporeans didn't talk a lot about Black Lives Matter is because they're like two Black lives in Singapore, <laughs> right? So you have to do a bit of cultural translation for them to say, your version of Blacks is maybe it's the Malay population or other underprivileged or underserved population, right? You need cultural translation to make that possible. You mentioned um, diversity IQ. Tell us about diversity IQ and what role the organization is playing in the diversity, inclusion, belonging space. So, so it's belonging IQ and it's, <laughs> it's a consultancy that um, that was just launched, and I'm I'm going to be I'm leading the, the effort there. And primarily, our goal is to help companies transform the workplace into a community, because the thing that binds a community is a sense of belonging, right? So, when I think back on the pandemic and how much time we spent at home, and I joke that even you know, my broom closet became an office. Home and work collided. And I just started thinking about how do we create this sense of home at work? Because what sleep studies actually, there's a sleep study done in the UK that tells us that, you know, in the lifespan of a 79 year old person, they would have spent 13 years and two months working and the only other thing we'll do more than work is sleep. And that blew my mind. So I'll spend more time working than raising my son, than being with my partner, than being with my friends. Ooh, that's a long time to not belong, right? So for me, I was like, okay, we need to start to actually talk to companies about this and to help them really look at this at IND from an employee experience perspective. So that's the work that we do. We come in, we will be doing training speaker series. We'll be helping to actually refocus DNI programs toward belongingness. So the principles, the core principles of DNI are valid and they continue to be valid. The question is, how do we leverage them to get to that belongingness which underpins employee engagement, employee experience, 
which allows employees to stay longer um, at companies. So that's what Belonging IQ does and it's all about. And what, because I'm really intrigued by that um, because belonging is part of my responsibility at the company that I currently work at. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges or, or, or just, you know, what we're facing today is not only creating that sense of belonging, but now we have to do it across a virtual landscape. Yes. Uh, com- you know, the world has learned a whole lot about how we work in a virtual, you know, setting and, you know, the fact that we can. And so um, the next thing is how do we drive a sense of community, that belongingness in that community? Um, How do we drive that when we are now remote and virtually situated? I mean, you know, a number of companies in the United States still have large workforces that, you know, show up uh, at a facility, um, but more and more are establishing either hybrid work practices mm. or they're establishing work from anywhere uh, practices. And But we still have that need to drive community and to have colleagues uh, continue to be able to build bonds. And have you all started looking at that and how you do that? Yes, that's a fantastic question. And I think, so let me go back to the early days of the pandemic when none of us knew what we were doing in terms of how to support employees to work from home, right? There was just that little window of time there for two or three months, but we would all get on Teams or whatever we were using at the time and we didn't have backgrounds, right? So what would you see? You would see my house. You would see my furniture. You would see my wall. You would see that I had pictures of my family on the wall. You could see the bookshelf behind me and know what kind of books I love to read. You would see my mementos. It gave me context. It gave you context, right? In a way that we never saw in the workplace. To me, during those two or three months before the screens came up, the blurring and all that stuff came up, I learned more about my colleagues than I had known for the years and years I had worked with them. We had children running back and forth, daddy, I want my dinner now. <laughs> and dogs barking and you could tell it, for me, it superhumanized us because of course we're human, but it superhumanized us. I remember we were on a really important call with the general counsel and the chief compliance officer briefing him on some situation somewhere. And one of the lawyer's wives came down. She didn't realize he was on a call. She didn't realize who was on the call. Quite frankly, she didn't give a damn. Mm-hmm. And she came, she was looking for something. And the thing was on the desk where he was sitting. So she leans across the desk, bends over, picks it up. And then looks at me and she goes, oops. Sorry, guys. And then she turned to go and she came back. She said, hi, I'm so-and-so's wife. Bye. (laughs) And we just bursted out laughing, right? And he was mortified. He's like, that's my wife, guys. And and the the GC said, oh, that's hilarious. And we're in the middle of something really serious. And that was like comic relief. But it was also, it also gave us context about him. Yeah. 
And so, and so I loved that. I loved that. And I think one way, it's a long, it's a long winded way of coming to where I was going, which is I do think that we get the Zoom fatigue, but more kind of calls without that background, keeping privacy concerns in mind really, really helps. And the second thing I want to say about that is it also, there were people who said, well, if you require people to turn on their video, it might make them uncomfortable depending on their living circumstances, mm-hmm. right? If you live in a home with a lot of people, if you lived in poverty, which we couldn't see, how, you, know, you don't want to share that. And I completely respect that. And I see how, how, how that is. But for me, what it also did was it gave me context for why that person may be acting a certain way. why they may sometimes come to work late or have to leave early they leave far away transportation is not always you know what it's supposed to be they don't have a car so there was there was something super humanizing about that process that i think we should actually embrace Mm -hmm. if people are comfortable i would say if you're comfortable to let the children come around and to let you know the dogs bark because quite frankly, a lot of these meetings are boring anyway. Dogs barking are interest, <laughs> is interesting. <laughs> and so that's one way to do it. I, I think there was a great sense of connection. The other thing that I think we could do virtually is just relax a little bit. Relax a little bit. And what I mean by that is I think when we all started, we're all kind of uptight. And now I've seen people kind of gradually go the tech way, which is, Sometimes you're not in sweat or yoga pants, but you might be in a t-shirt maybe. Yeah, I work for a tech company. T-shirt and jeans are the uniform. And even during um, the interview process, there's this whole paragraph that's included to um, applicants that says, you know, we're comfortable in uh, t-shirts and jeans feel free to dress that way for your interview so yeah yeah, yeah. so I think there, I think there's some of that but the other thing and I'm really passionate about this one because I think potentially working from home could create problems for employees for whom home is not actually a safe place yes and so a few months ago I was giving a talk on employers' responsibility to domestic violence victims? How do we support them during the pandemic? Home is not safe for them. Right. And for other employees, I think about if you live in like the favelas, if you live in some of the more overcrowded places, space is what we needed the most during the pandemic, right? And so telling people to stay at home in crowded places is not the safest thing. So what are the alternatives? So it raised some really interesting, complex questions. So I think there's no simple answer to that. I think it's a blend of encourage people to show up on screen and sometimes to let life happen around us, but also to be cognizant that there are people for whom home is not the place to be. And as soon as you can let people come back to the office, to let them do that. Because a lot of companies rushed out and started leasing, leasing space out, right? And reducing overhead costs and all whatnot. And I was saying, but you have this population that needs this space. This is sucker for them. This is home for them. You cannot take that away. 
So it's finding that balance between those two things and just being, and that comes with knowing your employee population, right? It's knowing for whom home is safe and for whom home is not safe. Mm -hmm. Abam, you've spent um, time today talking about your career outside of your um, corporate assignments about belonging IQ. Tell us more about what has led you down the path that you're on now and where you see yourself going in the future. Um, the short answer, I think, is just, I think I got to a point where um, I realized I've been given a certain number of years on this planet and I don't know how many years those are. And so I had spent the last 13 or 14 years just doing the climb, right? The corporate climb. And it struck me about two years ago that one of the things I remember saying when I was eight years old is that I wanted to be a lawyer, a writer, and a teacher. Mm. And so I was, I was assessing my life and saying, have I done these things? In the time that I have left, which could be one year, two years, 50 years, Am I going to get a chance to do those things? And I spent a lot of time in self-reflection and decided I had been waiting for someone to give me permission to be my full awesome self. And that person was never coming because that person didn't exist outside of myself. So I just started unleashing. I was like, okay, I'm going to go give, you know, a friend of mine heard me speak once said, you should continue speaking. Then another colleague heard me speak and said, why don't you come speak to my team about inclusion? I went to his team meeting. Then the regional head showed up the next day, came back to me and said, all everybody talked about was your, was your talk. So can you come speak to my regional leadership team? And then from there, it was just a cascade of things. And I realized the voice that I had kept kind of tamped down for so long was something that people actually wanted to hear. And so, and then I started thinking, what can I add that is not already in the marketplace of ideas? Mm -hmm. And so it was a cross between those two things, which was really kind of corny. I wouldn't say finding myself, the re resurrecting the self that had been hidden for a long time. And after that, it was like, oh, okay. World Health Organization wants me to come speak. Here I am. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Tedros. Thank you. Right? It just became, and it was such a confidence booster because I realized no one is coming. No one is coming to give me permission. There's, there's no one. Mm -hmm. So I've had a lot of support, but it has been support. It hasn't been a, now I ordain you ready to take the mantle. And I, and I, I can't explain it. I just, I think I'm going to really look forward to hearing your talk on the, how we even got to the place of waiting for someone. What, what conditioned us in our lives where we are waiting for permission, right? Yeah. Because no one is coming. I'm waiting for that talk from you, Abam. It's coming. It's coming. And Belinda, I'll tell you what, really quickly here. The last talk I gave was the International Coaching Federation. And after I told them my diversity story, I said to them, what is your diversity story? That's your homework. So when we were done with the call, 
people were emailing me pages upon pages of their diversity story. Wow. I mean, it was amazing. And then about a week or two in, somebody posted a comment saying, this talk has had such a big impact about, and I cannot figure out why. But I'm wondering, do you think it's because we were waiting for someone to give us permission to tell our diversity story? And I wrote back and I said, who is that person? Who is that person? There's no gatekeeper on your story. Mm-hmm. And so that whole idea of permission, the talk is coming because it has to come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's um, been, and you've described to us, you know, just an incredibly fabulous evolution um, of your insight and your experience that began as, as, a, as a young lady uh, who was plunged into a totally different country, a totally different culture. Um, and then you were able to pivot so magnificently to your professional career as an employment attorney, then as a compliance uh, officer and investigator. And I think it's just fabulous that you took the time to really study and learn human behavior and the humanity of it all and are using that experience, that insight and that expertise and your observations as a way to further empower not only individuals, but empowering organizations by unlocking um, the, the power of difference, the power of diversity, and then how you take that power and um, enhance it further by including everyone. So uh, kudos to you, Abom. We've had such a great conversation today. And, um, you know, if there were like three pieces of advice that you'd like to give employers about effective ways, particularly those that have global, you know, communities and global uh, organizations, what, what yeah. are those three most important pieces of advice on how they most effectively approach and use the power of diversity and inclusion? So I think the first one is redefining diversity, like I said. And I, and, and I want to make this point because it's a really important one. Acknowledging that we're all from diverse backgrounds and we're all part of this tapestry of diversity does not negate the fact that there is still racism and sexism and homophobia and that these things show up in the workplace and ageism. Because I think sometimes when we, when we talk about that, people may think, okay, she's saying that these issues have gone away. No, in fact, there's a higher likelihood that you'll have this issue if there's diversity. The question is, how do we hold hands, metaphorically speaking, to work through them, right? And please, in terms of advice, please companies stop diluting what we're talking about when we say diversity, we, there's diversity of thought. Of course there's diversity of thought. Of course there's diversity of perspectives, but our thoughts and our perspectives are shaped by nature and by nurture. I think the way I think, partly because I'm black, partly because I'm African, partly because I'm an immigrant, partly because I'm educated, we cannot divorce it and it drives me crazy when you're having conversations about diversity and somebody says, well, there's diversity of thought. Well, duh, 
<laughs> of course there is, right? But so that's the first thing I'll say is please, please define diversity expansively while acknowledging that all these isms still exist, but without watering it down with, you know, we, we have different colors of our mustache. So what, right? Um, the second thing I would say to employers is that fundamentally we're human beings. And the reason why I love belonging is because in the equation, in my diversity plus inclusion equals belonging equation, diversity is a thinking, right? It's a, it's a, it's a concept. Inclusion is a doing. Belonging is a feeling. It's here, mm -hmm. right? You walk into a room and you either feel like you belong or you don't. And so for a long time, the conversations we've had have been engaging our minds and our actions. Our hearts have been missing in this equation. And then we all say, but people don't remember what you said to them or did to them, but they remember how you made them feel. So companies have to get in the business of making people feel good about being in the workplace mm -hmm. as the second thing I would say and the last and third thing I would say is speak up which is the, the other focus area that belonging IQ has when I say speak up a lot of people think about it in the context only of raising complaints if you have a community of people who truly feel like they belong speaking up again going back to basic, speaking up means voicing your opinion or speaking louder that's it. It's not just complaints. So if people feel like they belong, they speak up about their ideas, their brilliant ideas, which you paid them for, right? They speak up about the things that may be wrong in the company, which means they're being good custodians, good stewards of the company's resources. Speaking up is not just about complaints. It's about people feeling heard, sharing great ideas. And so I would encourage employers to stop being so scared of speak up take the reins and redefine it as this positive thing which people do when they feel included, when they feel like they belong. And it's actually a plus for companies. Those are the three things I will say. Which was absolutely fabulous. Just uh, remind us one more time because I, I just thought that was great. So I said diversity is a concept. So it engages us on a mental or intellectual level. Mm -hmm. Inclusion requires the act of including, right? So it's a doing. Right. Belonging is a feeling. And so we've been engaging our mental and our, you know, acting or engaging capacities, but our hearts, our hearts have not really been in the mix and we need to pull that in with belonging. A bomb. thank you so much for bringing just a small part of your full, awesome, amazing self and sharing it today with our audience. You are truly amazing and we look forward to um, more amazing things from you in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so I, much for having me. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. If you like what you heard, Click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T-O-D-A-Y-S-W-O-R-K-P-L-A-C-E dot com.